0: Stories told of the Lone Ranger and Tonto, and they 're headed north through a canyon and as they say, near the end, they are confronted by a hostile Indian tribe wearing war paint and ready for battle. Tonto turns and asks the Lone Ranger he says, "What do we do now kimosabi he says well tonto let 's go to the uh, let 's go to the west and so they head to the west through this canyon and they get to the end of the western End of the canyon, and sure enough, there's a hostile band of Indians that are there, ready again for war and battle. Again, Tonto turns and says, What do we do now, Kimo He says, Well, let's go back to the east. And they go to the east, and at the end of the canyon, sure enough, there they are again. He says, Now what do we do? He says, Well, let's go back to the south the way that we came. And they go all the way back to the south. They get to the end, and sure enough, they're surrounded on all sides by a hostile group of Indians that are ready for battle. And at this particular point... Now we've got a problem. And so it's the Lone Ranger's turn to turn and ask his trusty companion. He says, Tonto, what do we do now? He said to the Lone Ranger, we? What do you mean we, pale face? (laughs) You know, and as I, I thought of that story as I was reading through the end of Paul's letter to his trusty companion, Timothy... And it's in the last inspired message that we have in the Bible from the Apostle Paul to God's people. And specifically, he wrote to Timothy. And in this final inspired letter, he brought to a close. Paul, as is commonly the case with those facing death, begins to reflect upon the people who have left a lasting impression upon his life. And if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see that Paul, at this particular point, tells Timothy and all of God's people, as we'll see, that we're to be faithful to the end. Faithful to the end. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 9, we read these words. Paul writes, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful in service for me. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It says, "Be be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you also, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you all. You know, as Paul faced his imminent death, he looks back at the many friends and the few foes that, he, that influenced his life and his ministry in one way or the other. You know, this great man of God knew that they were involved in everything that he did, that he was, you know, just a part of the body of Christ, that, that he was nothing more than that, just a part of the body and that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head. You know, it's interesting as we look at this, you know, Paul recognized that God had gifted and equipped men and women and called them into active service for them and for us to do the works that God had prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world that we would walk in them. Not too long ago, I was in a meeting and I had a, a gentleman ask me, he said, you know what, well Chuck, what, what's going to happen to, what would happen to kindred, for example, if you died? And I thought, wow, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping you're not hoping, or, or you know, or, or is that? I hope that's not a goal, but you know, at the same time, I just thought, you know, it's it's fascinating because the bottom line is this: if you know, if if isn't a question, it's when. See, when I die, I am fully trusting the fact that you know what God's program or plan isn't going to be stopped by any one of us being taken from this life to the next. You know, none of us are irreplaceable. I mean, the great Apostle Paul died. He departed this life and went into the presence of his Savior. And you know what? And God's kingdom is just okay. He raises up someone else to take his place. But his word will go out. His purposes will be accomplished. And as he says here to Timothy, you know what? And I trust that God will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom and to him be the glory. You know, we never have to worry about those what-if scenarios because we've got a God who's in control of all things. And He knows the appointed time. Before yet you and I lived a day, He knew every day that we'd live before we lived one. So we don't have to get all hung up on that. But what we do learn from Scripture is very clear that God will raise up more people to accomplish his His purposes for the glory of God and for His kingdom. And that's exciting to me because what it teaches you and I is this. That we need to be faithful in the exercise of the gifts that God has given us. To do the work that he has prepared for you and I to do. So that we walk in them. And that we need to be faithful to the end. What is our responsibility this side of eternity but to be faithful? Well done my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. To be faithful to the end. You know, over the past 20 years of ministry, I've been intimately involved with many who have had to face their impending death. And one thing was common to them all. When it came time to depart this life and go to the next, the only thing that mattered to them were the relationships that they had established this side of eternity. The most important of all relationships is the relationship that we either have or don't have with the God who created us there's nothing more important than that because when everything else in life is stripped away and that's all that you have left to face then it becomes very critical that you have the peace and the confidence and the assurance that only God can give to his people at that time of life right before death you know there's no question about it that that is the truth when everything else is stripped away and secondly after our relationship with God comes the relationships that we have with all others in our life. I remember vividly walking into a hospital room and watching a man die of lung cancer and seeing his wife sitting at his bedside and nobody else. And I thought, really, this is what it comes down to. You know, there's nothing else that's more important than the relationships we established. And when he went home to die at home, he was surrounded by his children and his family and those who were close to him. All of his working relationship, all of the achievements that he had, all the accomplishments in this life. You know, none of those things were ever discussed when our friend Jan died a month ago of cancer and you may recall I spoke of that several times as we sat by her bedside. There was no talk of the accomplishments that she had in life, of the horseback riding trophies that she won and the things that she enjoyed as a hobby. There was no discussion of the house that she was now currently living in and passing from this life to the next. There was no discussion of the car that she drove or the job that she held or the titles or any of those other things. Her greatest concern, since she had a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ, her greatest concern was that her children would enter into the same type of relationship because she clearly saw at that point in life, boy, there is nothing else that really matters. For we are confident in this very thing, the Apostle Paul said, that when we're absent from our bodies, we'll be present with our Lord. For those who are in Christ, and we'll talk more about that. But the interesting thing as we go through all this, you know, there was no discussion of anything other than the relationships that we have this side of eternity. You know, Paul's curtain call included sharing the credits, so to speak. As if we were watching a movie and at the end of the movie we stay back and we watch the credits. And most of the time the only time we ever stay back and watch a credit is if we know someone that had something to do with the production, you can say, Oh, there's their name. You know? And and other than that, it's like you just kinda buzz out of there, you know, and and beat the traffic and I'm always running in front of my wife. Come on, you can do it. You know. But (laughs) You know, it's, it's just, you don't really look at that. But as we look at this, the, this closing benediction, so to speak, it, it's, he's rolling the credits so that we begin to realize that Paul understood he didn't presume to work for the Lord independent of other believers or try to meet every need and accomplish every task. You know, he didn't try to stifle or restrict the gifted men or women that God raised up beside him. He saw them as fellow laborers and co-workers uh, in the gospel. He encouraged them not to neglect the spiritual gift that's within you. He said it to Timothy and to all of us. Don't neglect the gift that God's given you for his purposes and to apply towards his service. He he builds people up as as he proceeded through life. He says, stir it up. You know, get busy. Do what God is calling you to do. Fulfill your ministry For the kingdom of God. You know, the days are short and the days are evil and and we're really on borrowed time and that we don't know what that time is. We don't know if today is the appointed time that's going to be the end of our life this side of eternity. And so there's many things that we have to consider. Number one, we've got to consider do we have a relationship with the God of the universe? Number two, if we do, are we faithful to do the things that God is calling us to do? You know, we need to encourage one another, to build one another up, to equip one another, not to get in one another's way from accomplishing those things to be fellow laborers in Christ. That's what Paul is saying as he faced the executioner's acts, he was reminded of his old friends and new ones that he made those who were consistent in their service and those who never showed up to serve at all. Those who were always ready to volunteer and those who were never to be found. He was aware of those willing to make any sacrifice for the Lord's sake and those who were unwilling to pay any price for the same. You know, he recalled unbelievers who sat in churches like this and yet had never come to a relationship with Christ. And they were in church, but they weren't in Christ. And yet he saw how God even raised up people like that to help him and aid him in accomplishing God's purposes. He saw unbelievers and believers who came alongside of him and were used by God to fulfill his purposes. He even recalled enemies that he had, and we'll see that in this particular passage. Enemies that needed to be called out publicly because of the special harm that they brought to him and to the cause of Christ. We live in a day today where we're always trying to be politically correct, and we can't say anything publicly as if somehow or another, who are we to judge one another? And yet I read through scripture and call, Paul, name names. He said this person isn't doing anything. What God has called him to do. In fact, this person is getting in the way of the kingdom of God. Be careful about people like that. They oppose the work of God. They need to be called out publicly. And we need to recognize the lie so that others are not deceived by it and call it out. In a spirit of love and grace, absolutely. But you know what? Not sacrificing truth in the process. And so when we look at this all of this in in, in mind and this is the backdrop that we have we come to this final passage where Paul identifies several folks and the purpose of him identifying them is so that you and I may learn from their faithfulness and that we may learn also from their failure. To learn from their faithfulness and to learn from their faithlessness so that we don't repeat the same bad things that they did and we can exemplify or we can, we can follow the example of those things that they did right. And so as we look at this, we're going to kind of jump back and forth because they're interspersed throughout the, pa- the passage. But the first thing that he does is he identifies to us one who is faithful, and that's found in verse 9. We find that Timothy is a faithful servant. You know, as we've studied through these first and, this first and second letter, we realize that that Paul and Timothy had a very unique relationship. It was a father-son relationship. In fact, in the first... The first letter that he wrote to Timothy, he called him my, my true child in the faith, in the second verse of chapter 1. He calls him my beloved son, in the, second, in the second verse of this particular letter, chapter 1 as well. See, as I read through these words, he says, he's my beloved son. Timothy, my beloved son. And as I was sitting and preparing, the first thing that I was reminded of, immediately, was that the Bible tells us at the baptism of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that a voice came out of heaven... And said, Thou art my beloved son, in Thee I am well pleased. Luke three twenty-two. My beloved son, a term of, a term of intimacy, a term of oneness, uh, an identification with another. Timothy had a kindred spirit with Paul and he was dependable and faithful. He was faithful to the very end as we'll see. In fact, listen, or, or turn with me to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at the endorsement that Timothy got. As Paul wrote to the church that was located in the city of Corinth, the endorsement that came from Paul regarding Timothy is found in 1 Corinthians 4. Look at verses 16 and 17. In chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, he says this. He tells the Corinth believers, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Can you imagine that? And that's a command. Be imitators isn't an option, it's a command. It's it's an imperative. He said, I I exhort you, be imitators of me. Can you imagine saying the same thing? I hope so. I hope that you can say to your, your children or your friends or your family or co-workers or anybody else, you know, be imitators of me. You know, do the things that I do. And he says, for this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. He's saying, be imitators of me, and if you forgot how I live my life, then be an imitator of of Timothy, because he's an imitator of me, and in fact, I am an imitator of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I live my life as Jesus lived his. So you follow me, and if you don't remember, then follow Timothy, because he's following me, and I'm following Jesus. And if you follow Timothy, then you can tell others in your life to follow you, and we're all going to be okay, because at the end of the line, we're following Jesus. Follow him. He went on the same thing in Philippine, says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. See, the faithful servant of God is identifiable by both a knowledge of God's truth and a lifestyle that reflects such knowledge. Do you follow that? A genuine believer, one who is faithful, one who will be faithful to the end, not only has the knowledge of truth, but seeks the wisdom from God as how to apply the knowledge that we have learned. And others will see that it's consistent in our lifestyle. You know, the Bible tells us that we're not to be hypocrites. The word hypocrite was a simple word that was used of those who were actors. Uh, They put on a mask, and they would put on a mask in between scenes of each play, and they would play different parts, and they would put on a mask. And the Bible says not to be hypocrites like the Pharisees. Jesus said, you hypocrites. You put on a mask and on the outside, people think you're one thing, but God knows your heart and he sees that you're something totally different. So he says, don't be a hypocrite. There's nothing that that bothers people more in the world than those who are hypocrites. There is nothing that held me back from coming to examine the claims of Christ that held me back more than those who claimed to be Christians who lived like I was living at that time. Wait a minute, you're saying one thing, you live another way, I live the way you live, therefore I must be who you claim to be. And so if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, if it's because you believe in God or say that you do, I do too, you know, well look around, there's got to be a God, right? So if you live like that and I live like that, we must all be the same, and so we're all Christians. And it's all because of hypocrisy. The word of a sincere faith, the word sincere literally means without wax. It was used of those who would sell pottery. And when they would damage a piece of pottery and it would crack, they would fill the crack with wax. And you couldn't tell because then they would paint over it and it looked like it was genuine. It looked like it was authentic. It looked like it was worth much more than it really was worth because it was flawed but you couldn't really tell. Well, the way they found out whether something was flawed or not they would buy a piece of pottery, they would take it home, they would put put it somewhere where it was exposed to the light and as the light exposed the, the flaws and as the heat started to shine upon the piece of pottery, it would begin to what? It would melt the wax. And so all of a sudden, this piece that looked so genuine when it was held to the light, guess what? It wasn't as genuine as they originally thought that it was. And so as I thought about this whole idea of being faithful, the question, arises and that is this am i genuine am i without wax am i sincere in my walk with the lord and my claiming to be a child of god can everything i do and say be held to the light without it being exposing the wax that's trying to hide those flaws are you living a lie can your life be held to the light, which is the word of God, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? That Jesus Christ said, I'm the light of the world. God exposes those areas of our life because it's not long before he will expose that in our life. We will be held to the light and will be found to be not as sincere as we claim. Now, if that's true, that's bad news. But the good news is this that he who, are, he who forsakes his sin and confesses and forsakes his sin shall find compassion from our God. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals it will not, but he who confesses, agrees with God once he shines the light of the word and the conviction of the spirit in our life. God, you're right. That's my bad. And I will not only confess and agree with you what I'm doing is wrong, but I will turn from it and do that which is right. See, Timothy had nothing to hide. He was faithful like a, and like a longing father. Paul wanted to see him one last time before he set sail for eternity. See, in fact, Paul's sense of urgency was caused by the fact that winter was coming. If you'll notice, he says in verse 21, Make every effort to come before winter. Come as quickly as you can. And the reason for it was very simple. Though Paul didn't know the date of his imminent death, he did know that it was coming soon, and he knew that if Timothy didn't get on a boat as fast as he could, that the ports and the harbors would be shut down because sailing season, that window of opportunity, would slam shut, and he would lose four to six months. So he's saying, if you don't come right now, drop everything and come now. You know what? You may not get here, and it may be too late. And I really want to see you before I leave for God's presence. And so as we look at this, we see that Timothy is a faithful servant, one who is faithful to the end. Now Paul shifts gears, and he introduces to us one that we will call the faithless. You know, there's the faithful, and there's the faithless. And so he introduces us to a man by the name of Demas, who we learn in verse 10 is not a faithful servant. In fact, he moves from the most faithful to the most unfaithful, or the faithless, as it were. And he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This passage, as I was studying it, breaks my heart. Because here we find a man who was once valuable to God's kingdom and now was of no use. To the kingdom of God." Demas' life brings out several truths of scripture that should cause us all to examine ourselves very carefully. And in order to understand it, we need to look at a little bit of background. Demas is first mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're told that he, which was written, you know, shortly after First Timothy and 5 years, some 5 years before Second Timothy. So as we look at this in Colossians chapter 4, if you go back to it, you'll notice what Paul has to say about his companion, Demas. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes these words of the same man that we're looking at right now. Let's look at uh, verse 12. It says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, and that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he is a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, who we'll see here in his Second Timothy writing, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Just a brief mention, men, mention, but he's mentioned in good company. He's mentioned with Luke. He's mentioned with those who are serving together faithfully as a companion. He also wrote the same thing in Philemon, verse 24. He is called his fellow worker. So here is a man who was working faithfully and serving his Lord. Now, the problem is somewhere between the time that that was written and wow, while what, what Paul writes in 2 Timothy, sometime in that five-year span... Something drastically, tragically has happened in Demas' life that he would fall away from the faith. And I'll tell you why this becomes so personal to me. Because what it tells me is this. That you and I, who may be walking faithfully today, there's no guarantee that we'll be walking faithfully tomorrow. He was a fellow worker. He was walking faithfully in service to his Lord, and something happened in his life. We've already seen the, the writer of Hebrews said, since we also have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run the race with endurance that's set before us, so we know that we're in a marathon, not a sprint. And so we know at any time, if we don't lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus Christ at the finish line, the author and the perfecter of our faith, if we don't do those things, you and I can become a Demas. But there's two things about Demas' life that stand out, two scenarios that are brought out very clearly in Scripture, and both of them are very frightening to me. And the first scenario is this. At the time that Paul was writing this letter, this second letter to Timothy he was in prison. And persecution was raging against Christians because Nero had burned down Rome and needed to find somebody to blame it on so he blamed it on the religious right. And so as we look at this, there's a problem here. Anyone who identified themselves with Paul could easily have then been thrown in prison and lost everything. Demas being fearful, we learn this very clearly, that he loved this present world. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, what does it mean to love this present world? And how could that influence or, or impact our lives and our walk with the Lord? Well, turn with me ahead to the first letter that John writes. And in 1 John chapter 2, we have an answer as to the problem of what it means to love this present world. See, Demas loved this world more than he loved the Lord. He loved this world more than he loved the Lord's people, obviously, because he abandoned, as we'll see, Paul. Or even the Lord's work. And what's concerning to me, as we read through Scripture, is that in 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 15, we're commanded, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is a very real possibility... ...that Demas was never a genuine believer at all. And that should be frightening to all of us. There's a very real possibility that... ...anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. And therefore, if the love of the Father is not in us... ...we've been told in Romans that the Spirit of God or the love of God... ...has been poured out richly in our lives... ...those who have come to genuine relationship with God through faith in Christ... If we love the world more than we love God, it may be an indicator or a flag that the love of God is not within us. John goes on to write in verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and we saw this in these last days. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we do know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. It's a very sobering passage, a very sobering truth, that there are times in life, and if you read the the parable of the sower and the seed, and in Mark chapter 4, and also again in Matthew chapter 13, it's very possible that Demas' heart may have been a rocky place, One of those places when the seed is thrown out, they receive it gladly. And on the outside, it looks like they're now in the family of God. But as time passes, things begin to happen. There's not enough soil to cover and there's no deep roots and there's no genuine salvation. Because we're told affliction or persecution comes along and their true colors are seen. Could it be possible that Demas, as he faced affliction and persecution, went, you know what, this has been a fun ride up to this point. But if this is the genuine cost of following Christ, I'm not willing to pay it. And the reason he wasn't willing to pay it, because in the flesh no one would be willing to pay it. But it's only through the strength of the grace that we saw, the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that strength that God gives us in his grace, that when we face affliction and persecution, we have no choice but to endure it, because the Spirit of God gives us strength in the midst of it. So you can't project, well, oh, wait a minute, I mean, if affliction or persecution came along, how would I respond to it? Well, I'm telling you this, if you're a genuine child of God and the grace of God lives within, within you, what will happen is, is that God will give you the strength that you can endure. See, the book of, of, of Revelation is interesting in that many times it mentions and references to those who overcome. One of the obstacles of the Christian faith is overcoming affliction and persecution. One of the other things that we see in the parable of the sower and the seed is that the the seed was sown, which is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many received it gladly initially, but not only when affliction and persecution came along, but also when the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches then exposed what was really true of a person's heart. And so as we look at this, there's no fruit. You know, the Bible is filled with warnings that there are many in that category who believe they found the road to heaven only to be deceived and and never realize that they are indeed on the road to hell Jesus said many are on the broad path that leads to destruction and only few are on the narrow path that leads to eternal salvation the Christian faith is very narrow if somebody calls you narrow minded as a Christian say thank you Because it is very narrow. It is not broad and open to all forms of interpretation and all different roads. Not all roads lead to heaven. Only one does. The Bible says it's a very narrow path and it's a narrow gate. And the gatekeeper is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible says that there's only one way to get to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the keeper of the gate. You know, Peter's not guarding the gate to heaven. Let's just get it straight. I mean, I don't know how he got tagged with that label, but he's not guarding the gate to heaven. Jesus Christ is the gate, and we enter through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. John 14, verse 6. The narrow way is simply this, that, you know what, there's only one way to heaven. And the only way to heaven is that you and I must recognize what God says about each one of us is true. We're all guilty before God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and gone astray. Every one of us are at enmity with God. We're all like sheep. We've turned and we've rebelled against him as our shepherd. None of us are perfect. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. And we each need to recognize that. And when a person recognizes that, you know what, I'm guilty as charged, the Bible says, you know, what to do about it. And that is first recognize that you're a sinner. And number two, repent from your sin. Repent, turning from the idea that you have that somehow you were good enough in your own efforts to get to heaven or that you were better than other people or I'm good, I'm a good person. No, you're not. It's very narrow, isn't it? No, you're not. Neither am I. None of us are. Only God is good. When we recognize it, he says, repent of the thought that you have any goodness in you whatsoever. And any effort to please God is like a filthy rag before the holy righteous judge of the universe. He says, repent of that mindset. Turn from sin and turn to God. And throw yourself upon His mercy. Also to have a change of mind about who you think Jesus Christ is. He's just not another religious leader. He's just not another teacher. He's not another good guy. He's not any of the other things that the broad path claims that He is. The narrow path says this, who do you say that I am? And He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's what Peter said. That's what Martha said when she said, You are the Christ. You're the Savior of the world. That's what he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman, he said to her, He whom you have heard about, he whom you have waited for, he whom God has promised, it, it is I. I am he. He told the Pharisees even before Abraham existed, I am claiming to be equal with God, and they picked up stones, they wanted to kill him. So when he says there's no other way to get to heaven, there is no other way to get to heaven. Does that mean every other belief system is wrong? All these good, sincere people who believe what they believe, does it mean they're wrong? Yes. That's what it means. And it's not because I think that, or I say that, it's because the Word of God clearly reveals it to us. And the the litmus test of all of it is this. What other world leader, what other religious leader, whatever founder of whatever movement is out there, came back to life from the dead? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. God stamped his authenticity at that point. The ultimate act to prove he was who he claimed to be was that he came back from the dead to show that he was who he claims to be, the savior of the world, the one who can give eternal life. See, the, narrow, the Christian faith is very narrow. And we need to make sure that we always stick to the message. And the message is, recognize that you're a sinner, repent from sin, and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave indicates sacrifice. And the sacrifice that God made of his beloved son was that he would come to this earth and die upon a cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin that those who would respond with faith and believe that what he did is sufficient for your sin, then God says that you are forgiven. And when you receive him as as, as your savior, he says to them he has given the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. See, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says we shall be saved. The message is very simple. Repent. And believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. See, Demas may have been merely a professor of faith. And not a possessor of eternal life. He may have got caught up in a noble cause and in a movement. He may really have genuinely enjoyed being around the people that he was alongside of. Because they were genuine. They were sincere. They were without wax. What you saw was what you got. And there was an attraction there. He may have been involved because, man, they re- he really liked the worship music when they got together. You know, and he liked every, all the programs and all the stuff that was going on and it was new and exciting and he thought, wow, this is good stuff. But when it came time to pay a price for his discipleship, he said, I'm out of here. And the word deserted means to abandon. To abandon And utterly leave someone helpless in a dire situation. To leave somebody utterly helpless. It it reminded me of a story I saw the other night of a couple who left their baby in a park. Five days old and just sat this child in a park and walked away and deserted that child. Utterly abandoned that baby. Leaving that child absolutely vulnerable and helpless. That's the strong verb that is used for Demas. He deserted me. In my time of need, he split. He wasn't anywhere to be found. Now, the second scenario to give the full counsel of God is this. Is that maybe he just loved the world and got distracted from that which is really important. Perhaps he got caught up in the pursuit of riches and he loved money more than he loved God. He loved the creature comforts of life more than he loved God. Paul warned of that danger five years earlier in 1 Timothy 6, where he said, you know, those who long to get rich, you know, they'll wander from the faith, and they'll be pierced with many a pang. You know, they're going to end up in all kinds of trouble, but, you know, it just wasn't enough. His his maturity level in Christ still wasn't where it should be, that he wasn't willing to pay any price for genuine discipleship. So he could have been a child of God that just said, no, you know what, I want what's comfortable. I I want the, the comfortable Christianity I want to go to the church that teaches me how to be comfortable in my disobedience. I don't want to go to the church that will tickle my ear and tell me that what I'm hearing is what I want to hear because that's the way I want to live. You know, I don't want to go somewhere where I'm just sitting there so convicted all the time about how I need to be right before God and how to live a life that's pleasing to him. I want to go to the comfortable place. Well, that's what he chose to do. See, God, you know, and, and, and maybe he loved money. Maybe he loved his job. Maybe he loved his career. Maybe he loved everything else more than he loved God. I, you know, I don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible does tell us of those two scenarios. One is maybe he wasn't a genuine believer. And two, he definitely got distracted from his calling and the purpose that God had gifted him to, be used those, to use those gifts for the glory of God and, to, and, and to, you know, fulfill the plan of God. But whatever we do know, we do know this, he wasn't doing what God wanted him to do and he certainly wasn't faithful in the execution of that. So what do we learn from it? Number one, examine yourself. The Bible says examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith. To examine yourself to make sure that you're in Christ and not just in church to examine yourself and make sure that you've been born again by the will of God and not by your own efforts that somehow you're joining some social club this church of his because you like hanging around the people that are here and you like doing some of the things that they're doing examine yourself have you ever recognized what God says is that you are guilty you are a sinner before God and so am I but let's just turn it back to you you need to examine yourself because I've already examined myself have you ever ...repented of your sin? Have you ever asked God to forgive you of sin... ...and recognize and respond with faith... ...to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins... ...and rose again from the dead? Have you come to that point in your life, that crossroad... ...where, you know what, you, you came to that understanding... ...and you asked for forgiveness and you received Christ as your Savior... I'm not talking about you were baptized, and I'm not talking about you were confirmed, and I'm not talking about all the religious rites that are out there, external things. I'm talking about a broken and contrite heart that got before your knees, so to speak, before God, and said, "...God, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, and rose again from the dead, and that I receive Him as my Savior." No one can do business, serious business with God without having gone through such a personal exercise in their life. And I always find it just absolutely amazing to me. People say, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Because we come into the world alienated from God, and we become a Christian in in a miraculous moment in time when we're born again from above. And it's only after we recognize our sinfulness, we repent from sin, we respond to faith to the finished work of Christ, and we invite Him into our life as our Lord and our Savior. You know what? You can't do that by accident. Any serious decision we've ever made, we remember the day. Although as men, I realize, you know, our anniversary is like within give or take two or three days. But usually we got it in the same month. But we know we were there. Because we got the stupid looking pictures that we have, you know, that everyone wants to show. Our daughter, they moved into a new house. She got a picture of when Linda and I were like 10 years old, married, you know. And it's right in the entryway. It's like, what is that doing there? What have we done to you? We were so good to you as a child growing up. What are you doing trying to get even with us like that? You know, but the reality of it is, is that we know. I, I talk to people, they know the day they graduated from medical school. They know the day they graduated from college. I know the day they got married, the day that they got engaged. Man, they know all these important critical dates when they bought their first house, blah, 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 blah. And then you say, hey, well, when did you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? I've always been a Christian. Duh! We're deceived by the enemy, aren't we? If we're a believer, a genuine believer who's gotten distracted, then we need to repent and return to our first love. That's what Demas teaches me. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And not get distracted by the things that this world has to offer. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and all those things that keep me from walking the narrow path that's pleasing to my God. That's what Demas teaches me. What does he teach you? Now, going back to the good news again, because, you know, none of us like bad news all the time. So, we go back to Crescens, for example, in verse 10. Crescens is a man who represents, going back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, he represents all those unknown Countless unknown faithful servants that make up the household of God. He was a dedicated leader he was, that was sent by Paul to dedicate a dedicated church in Galatia. Notice what he says. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Man, here's a guy that's busy. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Using the gifts that God's given to him. He's fulfilling his ministry. He's faithful to the end. He's walking the walk. He's talking the talk. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Hey, praise God for guys like Crescens. Also, look at Titus. We know a lot about Titus. You know, Paul wrote a letter to Titus in between First and Second Timothy. And Titus was a godly man who equipped believers for the work of ministry. He was a man who was faithful in his pulpit ministry in that he preached the word of God. And he built people up. He equipped people for the work that they were to do. He realized that, man, basically what he was was a cheerleader who said, You know what? I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to use the gift that God's given you. I'm going to help you in every way to make that possible. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to rah, rah. Let's go, guys. we got work to do for the kingdom of God. That was Titus. And that's what we should be, you and I, to one another. People who build each other up and, and challenge each other and encourage each other to lay aside all the encumbrances and the distractions of life, to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We're to encourage one another, build one another up, so that we're all moving in the right direction before God. And one day all of us, as we collectively do what God's called us to do, can stand individually before Him and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, he was a builder. He was a quipper. And what God's saying to you and me is this, man, be a Timothy, be a Crescens, be a Titus, be a Luke. I love this. He says, only Luke is with me. You know what? And what a beautiful statement of commitment. Only Luke is with me. It says it all. The Bible says there's a friend who loves at all times and there's a brother born for adversity. Man, you know what? Only Luke is with me. He was always there. And you read through the accounts in the book of Acts, you'll notice how many times he used the word us and we. And, you know, he was there, man, in the mix. He was right there with them. Only Luke is with me. You know what that tells me? That Luke was there and wasn't ashamed to be counted as a friend of the Apostle Paul. And I think, wow, what a difference that is between Luke and Peter's failure. When Peter was asked by a little servant girl, said, no, you're a Galilean. I can tell by your, your dialect, you were with him, Jesus. And he swore at her and said, you don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know the man. And now look at Luke, saying, no, not only am I not ashamed of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I'm not ashamed of his fellow servant or my fellow servant and worker, Paul. And if that means that I'm guilty by association, throw me in prison with him. But I'm not ashamed. See, one of the genuine marks of a genuine biblical believer is that we're not ashamed of our Lord and Savior. Now, we may be immature in our faith and we need to recognize that there's part of that growth process, but there's a time that comes where, you know what, we boldly proclaim His name to the world that hates Him. I'm not ashamed to be... What are you, one of those born-agains? Hey, you know what, I praise God that I am. Because that's the only way you can get to heaven. You've got to be born again. That's what Jesus said. Now, I know it was derogatory the way you said it, but let me just explain to you so that you're not as ignorant next time you call somebody that. <laughs> Pretty graceful way of saying it, huh? But that's what it is. And how about where he says this? Hey, go get Mark. Go get Mark and bring him. Isn't that great? Go get Mark. This is the same dude that deserted him earlier. What I love about this is, you know, you sitting there going, I know some of you read through this. I read through and go, oh, wow, you know, what's, what's this? Just a runoff of names. What are we going to learn from this? Man, we learn this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. You run through this and go, man, there's a lot of good stuff in here. In fact, I hope you brought a lunch because we're going to be here for a while. Mark, Mark's the guy in Acts 13 that Paul said, I don't want this guy coming with us. He's a loser. He's a failure. He deserted us the last time we were out. We can't have people who aren't committed to the cause of Christ up to the point of even death. I can't have people like that coming with me. And Barnabas and Paul got in a big argument about it. And Barnabas said, fine, you go your way. I'll go my way. I'll take Mark with me. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. And I got to believe that he encouraged Mark to grow up in his faith in Jesus Christ. Because now, 20 years later, Paul says, bring Mark with you because he's useful to me. And you know what's beautiful about that? Is this. I'm going to ask you a personal question. And that's this. How many of you got distracted at some point between the time that you were born again and the time that you sit here today? How many of you got distracted at some point and you turned and you bought into the lie and you wasted a lot of years of productive service for the kingdom of God? Let me see your hand, be honest. Now look around. Look around. The beauty of all that is this. That he who forsakes his sin confesses and forsakes will find compassion from our God. You're here. Welcome home. Welcome back. Now get busy and don't buy into the same lie ever again. See, that's what Mark teaches me. And here's what also Mark teaches me that you and I are never disqualified from serving our Lord this side of eternity. If you have failed, and many have and many will, but if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To pick us up, to dust us off and say, You know what, I knew you were going to fail before you even failed. And I knew that you would come back as the prodigal son who, who, you know, came to his senses in the pig pen. And he ran and he embraced us and he brought us back home. Even Christian leaders who have disqualified themselves from leading in the church, so to speak, are never disqualified from future ministry. They may be disqualified from leadership because they're not qualified according to the biblical mandate, but they're never disqualified from serving their Lord this side of eternity. We need to understand something. Failure is a moment in time. It's not a person and we have a God whose mercies are new every morning and this is a beautiful statement of that truth bring Mark you remember him, the guy who was a loser but he's not anymore he was once lost but now he's found he was once distracted and now he's on target bring him with, with you because he's useful in my service man that's a beautiful truth and Tychicus, hey you know what I've sent him to Ephesus. And you know what? We don't know anything else other than we read about him in in the book of Acts when we studied it. But here's the beauty of all that is, all we know is this. Man, the guy's on the right path. He's faithful. He's useful. Now we go back again to the bad news. We see the faithless. We saw Demas who loved this world and deserted. And now we see Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You know, stop and think about that. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. He reminds me of the silversmith Artemis in the book of Acts who was making little silver trinkets and got all bent out of shape because, you know, Paul went in and preached the gospel and said, hey, stop worshiping those little stupid silver things and worship the God of the universe. You know, and if you're, you're, you're manufacturing and selling those little stupid silver things, you're not, too, you're not digging on this message that he comes and proclaims in town. What are you worshipping statues for? What are you worshipping these stupid little silver things that you're making? You know, why, why would, why would, how, how can that be God when you made them? Oh, you know what? We, we, our God's not made with human hands. In fact, our God made us. Well, let's put it all back into perspective. Stop worshipping these stupid little things and worship the great God of the universe. Well, Alexander, a coppersmith, was probably making stupid little copper things. And he was running around telling people don't believe what this guy tells you, you need to worship the little copper stupid thing. And if you don't, something bad's going to happen to you. Well, but see, here's what Paul said. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. The reason that Alexander was called out publicly is because he opposed the truth of the Word of God. And the reason we call out people publicly is because they were publicly proclaiming that which is a lie at the expense of God's truth. Some of you have said, well, how can you sit here and criticize Mormons? Because they're liars. They promote a lie. They promote a lying, uh, deceitful system of belief that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. But they're so nice. I, I'm not saying they're not nice people. I'm just saying they're deceived and they're lying. The same with Jehovah Witnesses. The same with Islam. The same with every other world religion. They're all lying and deceived and they're not pointing people to the narrow path, faith and trust in Christ and Him alone. That's why they get called out publicly. And even as I say that, some of you are sitting there going... <laughs> Oh, I can't believe he's saying that. Oh, man. Is he st- oh, oh, I'm so uncomfortable. Uh, you know, get over it. Because, you know, and the truth of the matter, you know, stop worrying about being comfortable. The Word of God sometimes afflicts those who are comfortable in areas they shouldn't be comfortable and comforts us in the areas of our affliction. That's just the way it is. We can't be comfortable living a lie. You can't be comfortable not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you're a child of God. You can't be comfortable caught up in the pursuit of riches and material possessions, and I'm going to challenge you that when I come to visit you, if you somehow or another you know, go before me, although I know there's a vast movement out there uh, hoping that, you know, that's that the opposite, but just saying for argument's sake, that I get called to your house, I guarantee you you're not going to talk about your job, your career, your education, how much money you have in the bank, or any of those other things. You're gonna talk about your confidence and peace and assurance that you have in your relationship with Christ or the one that you don't and all the relationships that you have outside of that because that's the only thing that matters in life two things live forever the word of God and the souls of men and women that's it everything else passing away and yet we put most of our energy and effort in the things that don't last and spend no time whatsoever discussing the things that are eternal I can't get people to talk about well what's going to happen when you die they don't want to deal with that they don't want to talk about that I'll deal with it when it comes. As if if you stepped off a curb and got hit with a bus in that split second before you get smashed to the pavement, that you're going to have a lot of time to think about it. You know we all make this presumption that we've got this plan of how we're going to be able to slowly begin to deal with the eternal matters of life and all it takes. Have you ever been in a car accident? I've been in three and four, or four, I wasn't driving any of them and, and I'm telling you, <laughs> just to let you know, we're going to run out here going, hey, the guy's in a four car accident. Man, you can't trust a guy who can't drive. Um, and, and the reality of it is, is that, man, they all happened in a, just a, you know, like, a, it was like, what happened? We we're laying upside down in the ditch one time, looking around going, what just happened? I mean, it just happened, bam, like that. We can't presume upon God he's going to give you some long, drawn-out process to be able to deal with it. Hey, today is the day of the Lord. And then there were the anonymous ones who all just bailed out on him. You know what's great about it is it. you know, what's Paul saying in verse 14, he's not saying, you know, God repay him, get even with Alexander. He's just saying it's just the truth. God will repay him according to his deeds. The great white throne judgment says that God will bring out the, the book, man, and the book will be filled with all the deeds of those who have not trusted in Christ, and they will be condemned by their deeds. Those who think they're perfect, God will just open to your page and say this. Whoa, whoa, look at this. Look at this, and you thought you were good, man alive! Look at look guilty, 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 liar, ooh, liar, cheater, uh, oh, oh, didn't honor your parents, oh, he never honored me, and and just go through it and say, you know what, you're guilty, you are guilty, and then he'll send you to hell for eternity. It's a very sobering thought, and I certainly don't mean to make light of it, but I'm trying to make a serious point. Today is the day of the Lord. Deal with the eternal matters today because who do we think we are that we can presume upon God? The anonymous all bailed out. Not one person showed up as preliminary hearing. Not one. They all bailed out. But you know what? Look what Paul said. They all deserted me. But you know what, God? May it not be counted against them. They're your children. They need to grow up in the faith. They're immature. Don't hold it against them Like, like a mark. Let's see them grow up. So he never sought vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. You and I should never seek vengeance against anyone that does us any harm whatsoever. Period. We always got to make sure that our motives are clear before God as to the direction that we're going. Paul said, you know what? Don't hold it against them. He goes back to the faithful and we'll wrap it all up. He says that, you know what? And then he says, you know what? And then uh, Carpus. Hey, Carpus, at my defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. It says, but the Lord stood with me. And in order that the proclamation might be fully accom- accompanied. You know, he, he said the Lord was always there. Carpus, he said, bring the books, bring the parchment, you know, bring bring my cloak, you know, bring the positive encouraging things that I need to be able to continue to learn and to grow. Think about it, he's facing death and he's saying, you know what, but my, my journey and my walk with the Lord's not done, I need to learn as much as I can. Bring the Old Testament with you, bring the vellums of the New Testament that have been written, bring the Word of God with you, because I want to spend time in fellowship with God. Man, I'm always seeking and learning and, and, and striving to know more about my God. You know, to know Christ and, and the power of his resurrection he wrote to the Philippians. Man, that, you know, we, we should never get tired of learning about our God as he reveals himself through the Bible. We should never get burned out on Bible study. We should never get tired of reading scripture. We should never get tired of being in the presence of God. We should always continually, if Paul, the great apostle Paul said, man, there's still room for me to grow, I'm thinking there's room for me. You know what I mean? And he says, but the Lord Jesus Christ was always with me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully... You know, talk about the most faithful of all. While we are faithless, He is faithful. The most faithful of all. Every time that I was afflicted in this lifetime, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. His grace was sufficient for me in the time of my weakness. His grace perfected His strength within me. And all I'm here to tell you is be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, that's the challenge. That's what he was throwing out. He wanted everyone to know. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely. The term bring me safely or phrase has to do with the departure word that he used of sailing safely into another harbor. The Lord will untie the the ropes of the ship... And He will bring me safely into His presence. It's going to be a wonderful trip, this journey from this life to the next. And I know that He, whom I have committed myself and my soul, you know, will be able to keep it against the day of God's judgment. You know... We, we who are his, God knows we are his, and nothing shall separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. You know, in closing, when we put all this together, he goes through and says, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus is a treasure at Corinth. Uh, Trophimus, I left sick. Make every effort to come. Eubulus greets you. Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. You know, and this is the same list, so to speak, that Demas' name was found as he wrote to the Colossians. And I wonder and I'm concerned that, you know what, if there was another letter written after this, would the names of those people still be found to be faithful to the end? Two things. How do we put together, man, all the stuff that we've learned? You know, two things stood out. Number one is this. Some people know just to write, you know, some people know just what to say and to do to encourage others who are going through difficult trials in their life. All through Scripture, God has called people to come alongside those who are struggling in life So that we can build them up. Not compromising truth, but to build them up in their faith. To say, yeah, you failed, but that's okay, because God forgives. Now forsake your sin, turn from it, and come back to God. And now you'll be useful once again in His service. To be encouraging of one another, to build one another up. Stop tearing each other down. But to encourage one another, build one another up. To use the gift or gifts that God has given you, to use in His service. To be faithful to the end. The second thing is a story that I read, and I'll close with this. It says in 1904, William Borden was a member of the borden Dairy family. And he finished high school in Chicago, and he was given as a high school present a world cruise. Can you imagine? In 1904, that's your high school present. Particularly while traveling through the Near East and Far East, he became heavily burdened for those who did not know Christ as their Savior. After returning home, he spent seven years at Princeton University, the first four in undergraduate work and the last three in seminary. While he was in school, he penned these words in the back of his Bible. He wrote, no reserves, no reserves. Although his family pleaded with him to take control of the family business, which was, was struggling at the time, he insisted that God had called him to the mission field and that that had top priority. It says that after disposing of all of his wealth so there wouldn't be a stumbling block in his ministry... He added no retreat to the back of his Bible after no reserves. On his way to China to witness to Muslims who were there who believed the lie and thought that they had been told the truth, he contracted, he contracted cerebral meningitis in Egypt and he died within one month. After his death, someone looking through the Bible, his Bible discovered these final words that were written. After no reserves and no retreat were the words, no regrets. He knew that the Lord doesn't require success, only faithfulness in His service. Man, you know, I thought about that. No regrets. To live a life this side of eternity and say with a clear conscience that I have had no regrets. I fixed my eyes on Jesus. You no, know, as Paul said, I have fought the good fight I've finished the course, and I've kept the faith. That should be the goal of every one of God's people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this time and for the word of God. The truth that was revealed first to Timothy and then to all of us of what it means to follow faithfully in your service to the very end. God, may we not be distracted from all those things that will keep us from accomplishing your purposes and using the gifts that you have given us. God, my greatest concern is for those who hear these words and think somehow they're on the right path, only to know that they are not. That they would lay aside their pride, the sin of pride, by the way, and that they would confess their sin before you and throw themselves on your mercy, that they might find grace and compassion in their time of need. That they'll repent and turn from sin and turn to God and trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins, the death of Jesus Christ, sufficient for that purpose. And the resurrection, that they would trust in the resurrection that Jesus Christ is as he claims. God in human flesh, the savior of the world. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God is those who have been born again from above. It is my prayer that we no longer are distracted by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the world, the flesh or even the devil and that we stay faithful to the very end so that we too can say I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I have kept the faith and awaiting me in the future is that crown of righteousness which you give to all who have come to faith in Christ who long for the day of your appearing. And we just thank you and praise you in his name, amen.